Amen. We're going to be in, in the book of John, John chapter 1 this morning. John, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, or the, the, sort of the second major section of the Bible, John is one of several books that tell the story of Jesus' life and teachings. It's one of the best places to go if you're interested in learning about who Jesus was, what he was like. It's one of the most ancient and most trustworthy descriptions of him. And the, the account that we get to this morning in John chapter 1 is the first, of, the first time we actually see Jesus interacting with people in this story. This story of Jesus interacting with some of his first disciples gives us our first taste of one of his favorite themes, one of the writer's favorite themes, of John's favorite themes. One of the things he loves to highlight throughout this book is how people respond to Jesus. He loves to explain and illustrate the different ways that people respond to Jesus when they meet him or hear about him. Uh, he gives us what you might call illustrations or case studies of what it looks like to respond to him. You know, a case study is useful no matter what field you're in, whether you're in the sciences, the humanities, if, you, if you're a researcher of any kind, what you're looking for is something small that you can get your mind around, something that you can study in depth, get to know really, really well, but that's useful to you because it explains something bigger than itself. You know, if you were just studying something small, it's probably not going to be that useful. What you want to do is unpack this one person's life to understand what it, would, what it would have been like to live in poverty in 19th century America or what it's like to be this one person who doesn't have insurance in modern America. You want to look at something really closely so that you can expand on that and understand something bigger. I think that's why John chooses the accounts that he chooses in this story, that, that the, the people that he's going to tell us about this morning, are, they're important, they're disciples of Jesus in a way that others were not, but they also stand in for bigger groups of people, groups that include us. They, they're valuable because they show us what it looks like for us to respond to Jesus, what it'll have to look like for us to receive him in the way that they received him. The stories that, that we're going to cover this morning are some of, the, some of the only stories where people actually like Jesus when they encounter him. You know, a lot of the stories in John are of people hearing, seeing Jesus, encountering Jesus, and rejecting him. This is one where they receive him. So it's especially useful for us to know what it would look like for us to receive Jesus well. Um, another way to put it is that John gives us case studies in what it looks like to be a seeker. These characters we're going to see this morning are all seekers. They're looking for something. They're looking for something that they don't have yet, that they haven't found, something that's missing in their life. And we're seekers too, right? If you're here today, whether you've been a Christian for a long time, or whether, whether you're just sort of putting your toe in the water, trying to figure out what Christianity is about, you, on one level or another, are a seeker this morning too. There's something you need something maybe you're hoping Jesus can give you. I wonder what you're looking for. This passage, really the whole book, is an opportunity to think about that question. What are you looking for? And to consider how to find what you're looking for in Jesus. And we're going to unfold this story together in, in several steps. I think the story shows us how to connect with Jesus, how you can connect with him, by looking at how these early disciples connected with him. Then the story sort of turns things on its head a little bit. It shows us how Jesus connects with you. When you think you're seeking him, 
you find out he's actually the one who's unpacking you. And then finally, looking ahead from this passage to what's coming the rest of the book, we see how it is that Jesus can connect you to God. Those are our three steps this morning. How you connect with Jesus, how Jesus connects with you, how Jesus connects you with God. Now, I'm going to read the story first. Uh, If you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This is going to be... John chapter 1 from verses 35 all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 51. This is the word of the Lord. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. How you connect with Jesus. That's where we want to start this morning. The text that we've read together picks up where we left off last time. It's where where John the Baptist, this key figure who comes before Jesus to introduce him to the world, is finally naming him. John the Baptist has become convinced that this is the Christ and he's telling everyone who's around to go to Jesus instead of sticking with him. Picks up the same same sort of phrase or same label that John had given Jesus in the passage we looked at last time. John starts by seeing Jesus and naming him as the Lamb of God. Then the action shifts from John to Jesus and the way that John's disciples, the the ones who first heard John point Jesus out, the way that they encounter Jesus directly for themselves. So really another way to say this is that what we have at the beginning, the starting place here, 
is a claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer, the Savior, the one that everyone has been waiting for. That's the claim. What we have are disciples who want to evaluate that claim. They want to know if it's true or not. What we get are two scenes of different people encountering Jesus and evaluating the claim told to them either by John the Baptist or by someone else that Jesus is the Messiah. Both scenes include these elements, individuals looking for the Christ and evaluating Jesus, and both of them include, and this is, this is what we really want to notice this morning, both scenes include the same invitation. You want to know if Jesus is the Messiah? You want to know if you can trust him? Here's how you know. Come and see. It makes sense that the first people to hear and respond to John the Baptist were John's own followers. Jesus walks by, John spots him, and he says to his followers who are standing next to him, there he is, that's the Lamb of God. His followers, who had been with John the Baptist because they were looking for the Messiah, obviously take this cue from him and go with Jesus. We know that, that they want to find out if Jesus is the Messiah, and that's what makes what happens next our first sort of unexpected twist in this story. Jesus notices that they're following him. And he turns around and he says to them, what are you seeking? Now, pretty much everybody that I read about this story said that this is John doing something John does a lot throughout this book. And that is writing on two levels. In one sense, Jesus is asking, so why are you following me? In another sense, he's cutting to the heart and he's saying, what do you want out of life? What are you really after? In in that sense, it makes their response to him almost comical. Jesus asks them what they're seeking. They've been seeking the Messiah. They've been following John, looking for him. That's what they want to find out about from Jesus. When Jesus asks them, what are you seeking? Best they can come up with is, so where's your crib? Where do you stay? They've just been told that he's the Lamb of God. They've just been handed over to him by this incredible figure, John the Baptist. And the best they can come up with is, where are you staying? It's like they just froze up on the spot, you know? Jesus is there, he's staring at them, he's asked them the essential question, and they freeze. But Jesus knows better. Jesus knows better. They may dodge the question, but he knows what, they, what they're looking for. And that what they're looking for is more than a brief conversation. And there's only one way, he, Jesus knows, there's only one way for them to find out what they're, what they're looking to find out. And that is his invitation to them. Come, and you will see. The next story has a similar pattern. So the next story starts with with Philip. He's someone who Jesus has directly called, says to follow me, and Philip follows Jesus and then goes for his buddy Nathaniel. It's one of the patterns we're going to see in every story about Jesus and Jesus' ministry and how it gets off the ground. It's word of mouth. It's one person telling another person about him, about something that they've experienced from Jesus. So Philip goes to Nathaniel, and he tells Nathaniel basically the same thing that, um, that John the Baptist had told those first two disciples. He doesn't use the Lamb of God. What he says is, we found the one that Moses wrote about, the one that the prophets had promised. Same thing. We found the Messiah. This guy is the one that we've been looking for. 
Now, if the first disciple's response to Jesus was comical, Nathaniel's is even more so. Nazareth? You say he's from Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, there's not any sort of... That's, that's I can tell from what I read. There's not any sort of background on Nazareth being sort of the armpit of the ancient Near East. Like it was widely known. Um, but it's not hard to imagine where that comment comes from. I mean, Nathaniel, we're led to believe, lives in a small town in Galilee. Galilee was kind of the backwoods of Israel. Uh, it was not Judea, not where the capital city was, not where David was from. It was just its own thing, kind of up to the north. It was, it was more primitive. So you can see Nathaniel from a little Galilean town having a sort of town-to-town rivalry with Nazareth. It's the kind of thing that even, even Alabamians, right, who are on the... I'm from Alabama. Even we Alabamians who are on the brunt of most people's regional jokes have to have Mississippi, right? He's from Mississippi. Really? Any good thing comes out of Mississippi? I think that's what, where Nazareth is, is, is coming into, into play here. But Philip's response to Nathaniel's skepticism is the key. He doesn't try to reason with him. He doesn't try to talk him out of his bigotry. He doesn't try to justify his faith in Jesus. Philip just says to him, come and see. Now, before we get to the sort of meat of the passage... Before we start asking questions about what they actually saw when they came to Jesus, I think we've got to stop here and make sure that this lands on us. The fact that both stories include the exact same appeal has huge significance for us in answering for ourselves what it's going to take for us, whether you've been a believer for a long time or whether you're considering Christianity this morning, what it's going to take for you to connect with Jesus is the same, the same invitation, taking up the same invitation that was given to those who were searching for him in these stories. You've got to experience him. We've been told already in this same chapter, a couple weeks back, we looked at the first big chunk of this chapter. And what we were told there, using the, John was using word, as a label for Jesus. What we were told there is that the Word, Jesus, who is the source of life, who is the key to living a meaningful and a purposeful life now, the one that we're made for, made by and made for, this Word is not an idea. The key to a good life is not a philosophy that you need to learn and master. It's not a set of logical conclusions that you need to work through. The Word is a person. And you don't test the truth of a person in a lab or in some sort of logical syllogism. You test the truth of a person by your experience of that person. By coming and seeing. By tasting a bit of them, their character. And the question for us, that makes sense so far, right? So far, so good. The question for us, though, is... How do you come and see somebody who's no longer around? Someone who's not in, uh, a body right in front of you that you can, whose, whose hand you can shake and whose voice you can hear with your ears and whose body you can see with your eyes. How can we come and see this person when he isn't just around in the same sense? I want to make three observations that I think are really important for you this morning, whether you're a long-time Christian 
or someone who's just now considering Christianity. Three things. Three things that are helpful for you, and then let me also say this, that are helpful for you as you work with friends who perhaps are not followers of Jesus. As you engage people that, that are in your world who don't know Christ, these three things are going to help you too to connect them to Christ. Three things. First, to come and see Jesus who isn't here anymore in the same way that he was then. First, you've got to come in good faith. What I mean is you've got to come genuinely seeking him, willing to have your mind changed. As much as possible, you've got to come without pre-existing assumptions about who Jesus is. And we said this early on in our study. What it's going to take to connect with somebody who lived thousands of years ago through a book that dates back thousands of years ago, really, it requires a tremendous amount of empathy, of sort of putting yourself into that world, of understanding it on its terms, of allowing Jesus to sort of explain himself to you, and of, of imagining how it would be if it were true. Taking it on as if it were true, and testing it sort of from the inside. You won't connect with Jesus if you assume you've already got him figured out. And we know that from our own human relationships, right? The quickest way to destroy a, a relationship with somebody or to sort of cut it off at the knees before it even gets started good is to assume you got that person figured out, to sort of put them in a category that makes it easier for you to dismiss them, where people are just complicated, right? We don't know, e- we, it, we, we never know each other deeply, not as deeply as, as we could. People are endlessly complicated, so you kind of have to assume that there's more to this person than meets the eye if you really want a relationship with them. You've got to sort of set aside the categories you might use to explain them and be willing to have your mind changed about them, to experience them in a deeper and fuller sense. And the same thing is true coming to Jesus. Across all these years of time and space, you've got to be willing to sort of enter into his world and have your mind changed. So that's the first thing. Sort of what needs to be true of you if you want to connect with Jesus. Here's the second thing, though. You come to Jesus, who isn't standing here in front of you. You come to him now by his word. If you want to come and see in the way that Nathaniel did, you've got to come to Jesus through the Bible. Now, it's true that you can't speak to Christ face to face, but this is, this is just an objective historical fact. Thousands of readers, millions even, across thousands of years, and vastly different cultures have found that the Bible isn't a normal book. That there's life to it. That something, something about the Bible speaks to you. Now maybe it hasn't affected you that way yet, but that doesn't mean it won't if you come to it willing to be changed by it. Jesus promised later in John, in a passage we'll get to later this year, he promised that he was going to send what he called the Holy Spirit, whose role would be to remind his followers of the things that Jesus taught and to be in the world while Jesus is not in the world, to help people understand him and connect with him. And that he does that through his word, through the thing that is written. Maybe that's not how you would choose to have an ongoing presence of yourself in the world, but that's what Christ has chosen. And, and again, countless readers have found that to be true in their own experience. So if you want to come to him, you're going to have to come to him through, your, through his word. He will meet you there. If you come to him there asking to see him, he will show himself to you. 
It's through the Bible that you connect with Jesus now. Come and see him there. And finally, here's the third thing. Come in good faith, genuinely seeking him. Come to him through his word. That's where you get access to him. Finally, come, you come and see Jesus in the church. It's in the church that we see the picture of Jesus drawn in the word, played out in vivid detail. The church is known in the scriptures as the body of Christ. It's the place where his character and his kingdom show up on the earth. I I love this one parallel uh, that, that John Stott put on my radar a few years ago. Between a passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, John chapter 1, verse 18, where John says, John, the writer of this gospel we're looking at, says, no one has ever seen God. And then he says, the Son of God has revealed him, Jesus coming to us. There's an almost identical phrase in 1 John, same author, wrote a letter to some early churches. And in that phrase, in that, in that letter, in 1 John chapter 4, he begins with the same sentence. He says, no one has ever seen God. But where he goes from there is not to Jesus in his flesh, but to the church. Here's what John 4, 1 John 4.12 says, no one has seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here's what John Stott says about this verse. The invisible God, who once made himself visible in Christ, now makes himself visible in Christians when we love one another. And here's what that gets at. The church community, for all of our flaws, for all of our failures of each other, for all of our failures of our ideals, no matter how far short we fall of our vision statements on our websites, the church community testifies to the character of Jesus and to the truth of the gospel's claim to a power because it's here that you can see the effects of the gospel on real people's lives. The gospel doesn't make us sinless. But it does mean that over time, we don't take offense as easily as we used to. That we grow more quick to forgive each other than we used to be. That we're more likely to give each other the benefit of the doubt. that we're more likely to admit when we're wrong. Over time, the gospel's power, the truth of Christ and his character shows up in how we taste joy, even when things don't go well. It shows up in how we face death. Here I especially want to talk to you you if you're considering Christianity. Friends, it can be so easy to dismiss the claims of the, of the Bible, the claims of Christian faith as a sort of wishful thinking from a distance. And there will always be some who will do that. But if you truly have an interest in testing Christianity for yourself, if you really want to see whether it's true, you've got to come and see. And I think what you'll find is that it's harder to dismiss when you see the effects up close and personal in the lives of real people who are different than they would be if they didn't know Jesus. Come and see. That's how you connect with Jesus. Now from here, sort of substance of these two stories, 
is not what we would expect. What we expect is more details on how to connect with Jesus. What we're sh- that's what the, that's what the uh, first disciples were expecting. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for material they could use to evaluate him. What they find is that they're the ones being evaluated. They come looking for Jesus, and they find that Jesus was already looking for them, looking through them. The next thing we want to notice is how Jesus connects with you. What was it that these disciples saw and heard on that first night? That's that's the question I kept asking myself over and over as I read this week to get ready. Because, you know, it, it starts with John saying, there's the Lamb of God. The disciples ask Jesus, where do you stay at? Jesus says, come and you'll see. And then the next thing we see, the next morning, they stay with him the night. Next morning, they're going for their friends. And what they're telling is that we have found the Messiah. Here's the one. What did they see that night that convinced them? We're not told. We don't know exactly what they experienced. But I think we have a hint of it. I think we have a hint of it in what the people that these first disciples bring to Jesus and what those people experience. Because Jesus and his interactions that we see in these two stories are with those sort of second generation disciples. If the, if the first ones, the ones that John told that Jesus was the Lamb of God, if they're sort of your first generation, they go and find friends. And then we see Jesus interacting with those friends. And in his interactions with those friends, I think we're getting a taste of what it was those first two guys experienced that night with Jesus, what it was that convinced them so quickly that Jesus was the one. And in both cases, in both his interaction with Peter and his interaction with Nathaniel, I think we see something about the nature of Jesus, his character, and what it is that can convince you that he is who he claims to be. It's that Jesus looks into us when we're looking into him. What they found wasn't so much that they found the Messiah, but that he found them. Not that they identify the Messiah, but that he identified them. It reminds me of the experience that surely all of us have had uh, in reading a really good novel or watching a great movie, where you start out evaluating that novel or that movie, right? You start out kind of critical. Whether you like the style, whether you believe the characters, whether this is going to be worth your time. But at some point in the really good ones, if you're reading or watching carefully, at some point, you turn a corner. And you're no longer evaluating what you're reading you realize that what you're reading is unpacking you. That it is getting you and explaining you to yourself in ways and terms that you immediately recognize but couldn't have put to words before. I think that's what the disciples experienced with Jesus. I want you to notice the bizarre details of these encounters. I'm just going to take, walk you through it. I mean, the first one that we see is Peter. Um, it, this is in, in verses... Uh, 40 to 42. So one of the guys, one of the two who had been with Jesus overnight, come out convinced that he was the Christ, was Andrew, and he goes straight to his brother. His brother is called Simon, would be known later as Simon Peter. He goes and finds Simon, and he says, we found him, the Christ, he's here, let me show you. He takes his brother to Jesus, 
And that's where it gets bizarre, if you really think about it. Maybe you're familiar with this story, so it isn't bizarre to you anymore. I want to invite you to, to read this again as if for the first time and notice how bizarre it is. He brings, him, he brings his brother to Jesus to introduce him. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't ask him who he is. He doesn't ask him where he's from. He doesn't ask him what his family's like or what he enjoys eating. He doesn't make any small talk. No, when Peter walks up to him, what Jesus says is, you are Simon, huh? No, you are Cephas. Jesus already knows him. Jesus redefines him. Who does that? Put put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. Notice what happens in the next encounter. So Philip follows Jesus. Next thing we see is Philip going to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, you've got to come see this guy. He's the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. Come and see. Nathaniel gets over his skepticism. He swallows his pride, and he heads to Mississippi. <laughs> Jesus sees Nathaniel coming toward him, and Jesus says of Nathaniel, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Basically, this is a guy who tells it like it is. He's the kind of guy who says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth and doesn't even care? Nathaniel's blown away because Jesus has looked straight through him to his character, the character of a person that he's never even spoken to yet. He asks him, how do you know me? Jesus' answer is bizarre. Nobody knows what to do with this answer. There's some different theories thrown around, but at the end of all those theories, all the guys that I read said, we don't really know what's up with that fig tree. But the point, the bottom line is, whatever symbolic value it might have or might not have, the bottom line is Jesus sees him inside and out. Jesus' explanation to him is, I saw into your heart when I saw where you were sitting. I know everything about you. Nathaniel's blown away by it, so much so that he, so much so that he, confesses that he is the son of God and the king of Israel. He goes from skepticism all the way to confessing that this guy is the king of Israel just because Jesus has looked into him and seen him for who he is. Now, Jesus pushes back a little bit. It seems like Jesus is saying, you shouldn't have believed quite so quickly. You haven't seen anything yet. But the point is, is still there. This guy is convincing people that he is who he claims to be because of his insight into them. Now, Here's the, impl- here, here's the key. We've already said that the, that the thing we need most, according to John, is not a new idea, not a new philosophy of life. We need a person. And there's some baggage attached to that claim. Because an idea is nice and benign, right? It's there on a page. You read about it, you sort of think through it, you turn it over in your head. It doesn't fight back. But a relationship with a person is always two ways. And while you're looking for Jesus, according to this story, Jesus is also looking for you. Not only is he looking for you, he's looking through you. Relationship is always two ways. And this is a fair warning to you. Jesus sees you like no one else does. There's some comfort in that claim. Jesus sees us, knows us intimately. That no matter how hard it is for you to explain yourself to someone else, to a friend or an acquaintance here, Jesus sees you for who you are. There's some comfort to that. And he understands us even better than we understand ourselves. But there is a terrifying side to that too. 
Jesus sees everything. He sees the good and he sees the ugly. And haven't you experienced what it's like in a relationship when when you sort of turn a corner and you know that the person you're in a relationship with sees you, even the parts of you that you wish you could hide? How sometimes that can just throw the relationship even off kilter a little bit? That you can't, there's no going back once you've been seen? That sometimes it can make you insecure and uncomfortable? Here's the beautiful thing about this story. The beautiful thing about this story, where Jesus sees into people, knows them perfectly. The reason it's beautiful and not a source of fear to us is that Jesus not only sees us for who we are, but has the authority and the power to make us someone else. To rename us. That's what I think we're supposed to pick up on from his naming of Peter. We don't see it with Nathaniel, but I think the encounter with Nathaniel is similar enough to the encounter with Peter. But we see John's point is Jesus knows who you are. And in that light, look at his naming of Peter and see the beauty in that. And what we're going to see about Peter, what all the Gospels tell us about Peter, is that this guy was anything but a rock. That's what the name Peter means. Jesus says, your name has been Simon. Now your name is going to be Rock. What the Gospels all claim, though, what they all explore in introducing Peter to us is that he's anything but a rock. He's the opposite of that. He's rash. He's unpredictable. He's impulsive. He's unreliable. Peter is, he is just sort of lets it all hang out there. He's anything but rock solid and firm and immovable. So that Jesus calls him a rock. I think what we're meant to see is that Jesus is right here on the spot, announcing who he is going to make Peter. Not because Peter naturally is disposed to strength and reliability, but because Jesus has the power and the authority to make you something other than what you are. That what we see in this encounter with Peter is what's promised to each of us. Through faith in Christ, we will be made new. Our new names will be given to us. Names that speak of of purity and cleansing, of strength and reliability, of the promise of new life even beyond the grave. Those those are the names Jesus will attach to us. There's nothing you've done that Jesus can't make new. I think that's what we're promised here. I wish I had time to explore all the Old Testament renamings. Jesus is not doing this in a vacuum. When he gives Peter a new name, he is claiming a mantle that God the Father had, had used all through the Old Testament story to change people's names from the sort of weak and frail things that they were into things that were strong and full of grace and power. He even promised to give his people a new name in the prophets, that, that he would give them a name that was different from the one they had dragged through the mud, the one that they had, the one that they had tarnished by their own unfaithfulness, their constant turning away from God, that he was going to give them a new and permanent name. Jesus is claiming that kind of authority. That's what he offers to you if you trust in him. That he will see you for who you are, but he has the power to make you new. Now, what I want to point you to is what Jesus says in the last verse of our passage. There's like so much else in John chapter 1. 
the details that John chooses to give us in this first chapter are almost all pointing us ahead to things he's going to do later. And that gives me the freedom as a preacher not to really say much about John chapter 1, verse 51, the sort of ascending and descending in the, the Son of Man. It's pointing to themes I'm going to get to say a lot more about later in the book when we get there. But just to sort of point you ahead, note, I want you to notice about this passage that what Jesus ultimately wants when he invites you to come and see is not just a buddy-buddy relationship with him in, in the sense of, of human interactions. He wants to connect you to the God who made you, to the God in whose presence there is life and joy forever, to the one whom all of us have rejected, whether we recognize it or not, to the one whom we are separated for, from, and, and to the, to, to, he, wants to, he wants to heal the sort of separation that's at the core of all of our problems. I just want to point you to how that's what Jesus is getting to, to whet your appetite for what's coming later in the book. Because I'm guessing, especially if you're reading this for the first time, when you, when you heard Jesus say, you haven't seen anything yet, you're going to see angels, and, angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man, it may have felt like another sort of weird, dud response. Just, it doesn't, it, I want to see something powerful, right? We're about to see Jesus turning water into wine and stuff like that. That's almost what we would expect Jesus to point to here. You haven't seen anything yet. Just wait until Cana when I turn water into wine. That's not what he says, though. He says, just wait till you see Angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's that about? It's basically a quote from a story in Genesis where the founder of Israel, Jacob, the one who was called Israel, meets with God. Or rather, God meets with him. He's on the run. He's penniless. He has nothing. And while he sleeps, God comes to him. He comes to him in a vision of a ladder coming down from heaven, a connection between heaven and earth, and angels coming down and going up. And what Jesus is saying here, when he says that this is what you will see, is not that you'll see another vision like Jacob saw. It's that everything Jacob's vision represented, this holy place that was founded at that spot, a place called Bethel or House of God, the possibility of connecting with God, of of a hole punched in the wall between heaven and earth, that has now come to fruition in me. I am the one through whom you will know God. And it'll happen because I may be the Word, I may be the light, I may be the Lamb of God, the one through whom the Spirit comes, I may be the King of Israel and the Son of God, all these titles that have piled up for Christ in chapter 1. But ultimately, the reason I can connect you with God is that I am the Son of Man. The first time Jesus claims a title for Himself, one that's a little bit more mysterious, one that He is going to fill up with meaning, one that is attached not just to his power and authority where he speaks and people are renamed, but that's attached to his own death, to his humiliation on behalf of his people. The reason there's a pathway through Christ to God, the reason that he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him is that he has made himself the Son of Man who must be lifted up so that when lifted up, he can draw all men to himself. That's what he's pointing ahead to here. You can know the God who made you because Jesus, the Son of Man, has given up his life. That's the Christ you're invited to come and see. Let's pray. Father, if your word is not true, then we have no hope. If your word is not true, then death is the end. 
But if Christ is alive, there is nothing we can't do without in this life. There is no disappointment that cannot be turned to joy. And so we pray to you for the power to believe that your word is true. For the power to live now as if Jesus is alive. And we know that that power comes when we taste of him. When we come and see him. When we interact with him through his word. So Father, help us now. Draw us to yourself to come and see and meet with us, we pray. Through Jesus in his word. Meet with us, we pray. In his name, amen.